Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings to all you contestants in the vast and exciting world of science and or engineering. You've gathered in exactly the right place because we're all together ready to embark on another fascinating episode of Tech Talk. And it just so happens that we're fortunate to be joined today by our illustrious Tech Talking Dynamo, Matthew Dickerson. Hey, you've had a big week this week. Oh, we have had a big week. In fact, both of us, James. Yes, we have indeed. Science and Engineering Challenge. It's something that is not known everywhere across the world, but I'm sure there are similar things that they do. In this particular example, Newcastle University takes their tour on the road and they have challenges they set up for primary school kids, for high school kids. And of course, you were there in your role as a yeah, teacher yeah. and helping That's out. Right. Yeah, it's an excellent, um, well, four days of competition. Mm. And they uh, take it out to various regional centres all around the state and the country, I understand. Yeah. Um, and they compete for points and there's finals and uh, which was over state finals and I think national finals as well. It's a big deal. It is. And I love just watching the thought process that the kids go through. So I normally go along with a few of the real engineers from council, mainly because I want to beat the kids. So yeah, of course, so you, oh, you go along. A lot at stake there, mate. <laughs> That's right. So you've got pride on the line there. But also it's good for some of the kids to talk to some people who are real engineers. And if they're interested in that sort of pursuit, it might just be how did you get into this? What mm. you need to go to? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? But I always like to go in the bridge challenge. And for those that haven't seen it, effectively you've got a bunch of balsa wood. You've got some tape. Some masking tape, yeah, some a paper, bit of string. Yeah. I've never been able to work out what to do with the string. The string doesn't seem to help much. <laughs> There's a couple of red herrings in there, I think. I think yeah. you're probably right. Some paddle pop sticks, different length paddle pop sticks. And obviously your job is to build a bridge as strong as possible and they put various weights across it. But we, and I know I'm cheating because I'm using a few engineers with me, but we go for a very scientific approach and very much making it like a, a structural event. But then I look around the room and watch some of the other kids and see how they're doing it. And some of them look, beautiful. Some of them are very creative. Some of them don't hold any weight at all. No, that's right. Some are <laughs> abject failures. Absolutely right. But it is interesting to see how people go about it when you don't have any preconceived ideas of what you would yeah, do. starting from scratch. Yeah. And we've talked about it before that carbon fibre being used for, say, bicycle frames means that designers can throw away, throw away all those traditional concepts of the strength of triangles in a bike frame. You can just build it however you want because mm. carbon fibre is so good. Maybe some of the kids doing these designs think they've got carbon fibre, not balsa <laughs> wood. <laughs> but I love I love the way they get into the activities, all the different activities, uh, and the tinkering that goes on because we know that they are in, in any sort of engineering, there's a basis of science behind it. But then there's the tinkering that happens as well, the fine adjustments, the the scrapping everything and going back to the drawing board and all that sort of stuff. That, yeah. That's that's the really cool thing and the, the exploration that occurs and that. And I, you were saying that some students want to ask questions about engineering and whatnot, but there are also students who discover stuff about themselves that they didn't realise existed. Yeah, and I think the, the people that make the best engineers, the best scientists, are the curious. Mm. So not necessarily coming up with the perfect design the first time, they may say, let's try this. What happens if we try putting the... Oh, no, that didn't work. All right, let's try something different. And that sort of curious nature, that experimentation, I think they're the people that in 20 years' time are making huge breakthroughs in science and engineering because they're willing to try things. They're not going down a traditional, normal path. They're trying different things and seeing what works. Yeah, no, I think it's just a fantastic opportunity for young people, um, you know, the, the countrywide. So it's, it's, 
It's really, really awesome. And good fun when you see those weights go across the bridge yeah. and oh, it collapses and <laughs> or maybe makes it a relief. Uh, these kids have got so much hinging on it. And um, <laughs> and your engineers would have had the sweat beads just drip, dripping off their forehead, I guess. Well, the last thing you want is to see a bridge collapse and then see these same engineers designing a real bridge in the real world <laughs> yes. the next day. I have said, because we did do a, I did a nice slow motion video for people to watch what happened to the council design bridge. But I did say that normally in the real world, we don't use balsa wood anymore, yeah, so if there's any yeah. any sort of comfort Cut to have from right what happens with that material. bridge, that's right. There's more concrete and steel used in modern bridges rather than balsa wood. So I've got a question for you. Did it survive the Big Bertha bridge builder? So, uh, sorry, bridge buster, I should well, say. Well, this time I had to leave early. So oh. the weights that had got to it survived all those, and they were leaving the bridge buster for later on. And I was only told later on that it didn't quite survive the bridge buster. Uh, We've done some in previous years that have survived the bridge buster. Yeah. One of the real interesting or really interesting parts of the process is trying to build the bridge and have a weight component. So, mm. for example, if two bridges in the competition, not that the council guys are competing in the competition, <laughs> but for the students, if two bridges survive the same weight and then the next one they do, it both they two bridges collapse, the yeah, yeah. then they actually have a, a weighing process. So the lighter bridge. So you're trying to do as good a job as possible with as few materials as possible. So I like that extra little twist. Yeah. So it's probably a bit easy if you just say, we're going to chuck everything in this, we're going to chuck the kitchen sink in there to survive the big bridge buster but when you try and do it with a little or fewer materials that makes it a bit harder to survive that big bridge buster going across mm. there so this year they went well engineers went well it survived some heavyweights but not quite the bridge buster and um yeah look uh, as i say four great days a uh, big congratulations got to go out to newcastle university and to dubbo rotary for their coordination of it there's a few um, rotary clubs from dubbo that are involved so. sorry yeah all yeah. the rotary clubs of dubbo i should have pointed that out sorry my apologies um and um to all the schools uh, that participated as well it's such a rich event um, yeah. so and there's awesome. organization getting schools involved you've got to get buses you've got to get kids yeah, yeah. you've got to get people organized put their hand up and be keen and turn up and be keen on the day so it yeah. is tough for the teachers to coordinate all those extracurricular activities, which is one of the things I think teachers are fantastic at, is getting kids involved in those other activities. Enthusiasm, yes. Mm. And uh, while we're on the subject, I want to sound a big, send out a big old cheerio to a new friend and avid listener. I want to say howdy doody to Rebecca, who I met at the challenge um, here in Dubbo. It was only a couple of weeks ago, of course. But nevertheless, it's recent enough that we, we need to acknowledge that this has occurred. I, I hope that you're listening, Rebecca. It was a pleasure working with someone as clever as yourself, and I hope you keep up the enthusiasm for STEM studies into your bright future. Very good. Now, on to the business of the day. It seems that the giddy world of vacuum cleaner design just isn't enough for the good people of Dyson, and they've branched into lifestyle tech. Dyson are into designing headphones these days, but their headphones have a big difference. They'll purify the air as you listen to your favourite tunes, folks. Matt, I'm picturing myself with Vivaldi's Four Seasons cranked up to 11 with my lungs full of COVID-free alpine fresh air. Are you with me? Not quite. Oh. I'm not sure that it's COVID-free. Oh, okay. They make no mention of anything to do with COVID. They no. make mention of taking out a whole range of ultra-fine particles like household dust, pollen, brake dust, industry combustion, bacteria, city gas pollutants, but notice that COVID-19 is conspicuously absent from oh, the list of things. they're not promising anything antiviral. No, okay. they're not, which is probably fair enough because... But, but they're fine for walking down Parramatta Road <laughs> during peak hour, right? That's right, okay. yep. All that brake dust that's being generated <laughs> on there, it's all okay. So let's just go back a step. I want you to picture headphones with 
a big lump out the front, a bit like helmets. You know those open-faced helmets that kind of have a bit that folds down yeah, and has a bit yeah, in front yeah. of your face? So imagine that. So Dyson Well, I was looking at the picture of it, if I can just interrupt you there, and it kind of looked like something out of Star Wars. It I can did. imagine one of the characters of Star Wars walking to a bar in Tatooine dressed like this. Absolutely right. So it doesn't look like a fashion statement. And Dyson are fantastic with moving air. That's what they've been famous for. But I also like Dyson's approach or attitude to innovation. They try things sometimes. Mm. This is probably one of those things that they'll try that may not be one of their best sellers because I just don't know that people would like to be walking around wearing this. They've gone into acoustics and I haven't seen them do anything in high level acoustics before. So they've got high quality headphones, noise cancelling headphones. That's what you'd expect. But I wonder if it's an air purifier that they've managed to flog off with some headphones. I think so. I think yeah. that's exactly it. They've said, hey, here's this great idea for a mask. They've taken feedback from consumers, a mask that doesn't touch your face. And so you first go, well, it doesn't seem like it's a very good mask because you want it sealing around your nose and yeah. mouth if it's doing its job properly. So they've taken a different approach. They've said people hate the idea that this mask touches their face and people can't hear them when they're talking. It's terrible. So why don't we design a mask that sits away from their face takes in air from up the side, so near your ear, brings in air, purifies it on the way through, and then puts out a small draft in front of your nose and your mouth, so you're breathing that nice, fresh, clean air in. Oh, no one's going to wear that. I know, exactly as you said. Let's chuck some headphones onto that, and that'll make it a hit. So you put the headphones on, you've got the big thing out in front of your face, but because it's not sealing it, I just don't believe they could get enough air going across Mm. your mouth and nose to say that no other particles of air are going to come along there. So I'm sure it takes whatever it's taking from the side and brings it in and cleans it up and puts it in front of your mouth. It does that fine, but again, because it's not sealing above and below your mouth, any of those COVID-19 particles floating around probably are still going to get to you. Well, perhaps this is just the first model in something that becomes a little bit more normal later on and a little bit more streamlined, a little, a little bit more effective in its design. Maybe. Maybe when we all start walking around with purifying snorkels, this will look normal. <laughs> You'd maybe do it around your house if your house was a bit in an area where it was a bit dirty, the air was a bit dirty. I just I just don't see many people walking the walking tracks of the community with their snorkel and headphones <laughs> on. Maybe we'll get these Star Wars figures um, sort of working on construction sites wearing these things. <laughs> yeah, maybe, well, maybe that would be a good place for it. So <laughs> somewhere where you needed to have some sort of clean air environment, then maybe they'll work there. But oh, I just, I'm not convinced that they're going to be a fashion statement out there. It's actually a bit funny when you see people with normal headphones on out on walking tracks. You expect them to have little earbuds in, but when you've yeah. got big headphones, you think, oh, what are you wearing those big headphones for? Now, some people prefer them, I get that, but they look a bit funny, especially if someone's out jogging, because mm. they bounce around, I'm sure it doesn't feel that pleasant. Adding a snorkel to the mix, I'm not convinced. Yeah. When we talk about a pet being a friend for life, it usually means their life, and let's face it, 15 years is a pretty good run, and that's a bit sad. If only there was a way you could keep your furry friend forever and ever. Well, folks, do you know where this is going? As the age of genetic engineering matures into its next stage, you'll be pleased to know that cloning technology is now available to pet owners, and you can clone your favourite pooch or moggy so that they can live on and on and on. Matt, this is really a thing now. This is really a thing and surprisingly easy. And when I say easy, there is a price tag with it, so maybe not that easy, but you can just take your favourite little dog take it to one of a number of different cloning companies around the world, and for a miserable $50,000 US, you can clone your dog. 
$35,000 for a cat. I'm not sure why a cat's cheaper because I imagine the process is pretty much the same. They're yeah. a bit smaller, I get that. But the one I'm excited about, James, is $85,000 for a horse. Now, Winx, obviously, oh, the wow. most the most famous horse. Well, maybe there's a little Farlap horse that was pretty famous as well. But take Winx, for example, uh, won $26 million in her career, 28 consecutive victories in Group 1 events. So not a bad racehorse. Why don't we just clone Winks? Just don't tell anyone. We'll just go and clone Winks, <laughs> and we've got another horse that surely is going to be pretty good. I mean, from 43 starts, Winks won 37 times. So if we get another horse like that, that sounds great. Until everyone else knows about it, and then there'll be horse races that'll just be this is the Winks event. Every horse in this event is a clone Winks. Well, we've got to be careful about this because there are a couple of little uh, finicky little details that need to be considered here as well, though. Well, you mean ethics? <laughs> well, not just ethics. Yeah, sure, ethics. But yeah, I think about Dolly. Dolly the sheep was cloned in 1997. Her clone, though, developed arthritis at a very young age because the DNA was a bit old. So, and this is the, the interesting part. I I am aware of Dolly. Actually, fifth of July, 1996, Dolly was born. 96. Okay, 96, sorry, yep. it was mid 96. Okay, yep, but I and I know Dolly had some problems. But I don't know if they've ever put that down definitively to the cloning process or whether it just happened because sometimes animals just get sick. So has there been any definitive proof that it was as a result of cloning? I'm going to have to go and do my research on that, uh, Matt. But um, I, 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 I thought it was something to do with the age of the DNA because the DNA wasn't necessarily – well, it was, it was taken from a mature sheep. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, so – it is interesting, though, that people would love their pet so much that they would want to clone yeah, it. I know. That's such an interesting thing, isn't it? And even the companies that do the cloning say, yes, it's a clone, but it's not necessarily going to be identical because 25% of the personality, in inverted commas, of your pet comes from its upbringing. Yeah, that's the environment. Yeah. That's right. And it's the old nature versus nurture. And I assume that they only say 25% because there's a lower intelligence level for a pet, so it probably learns less about its environment as it grows mm. up. I assume if you cloned a human, then there would be a much greater component that was from the upbringing of that particular human because you've got more intelligence, more ability to remember things. Yeah, more things learned, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But people do it. Barbara Streisand has done it. Uh, oh, Simon, really? Simon Cowell has done it, where they clone, <laughs> clone their pets because they want to have their pet live on and on and on forever. Yeah. But, I mean, part of the mystery of having a pet is the fact that you get a different pet. I mean, I've got, right. I've got four children and they're all very different. I don't think I'd want four clones of myself or my wife. I think having that variety, that mixture of two different people and what you end up with is all part of the mystery. But, but that 25% um, well, sorry, of things that are, are learned, um, that's significant. And so the, the pet that you've got, it's going to be a different pet. It's not the same animal. That's right. And there's no recollection. There's no memory of yesterday we went out and played ball. <laughs> so today we're going to go and play ball. <laughs> you might bring up that new one without playing ball at all. You're going to start all. that toilet training all the way from I the know, start. I know. So you, you <laughs> might as well start with a new set of dynamic material rather yeah. than the same old set. But it is interesting. Then I think you start to get some really interesting ethical issues. So imagine, go back to my Winx example, you take this champion racehorse, but then Farlap was said to have had a, a heart that was about 6.35 kilograms, which made Farlap such mm. a champion over longer distances. Winx was more a shorter distance racer. Imagine taking the genetic material of Winx and say, let's clone that, but let's just tweak it a bit. Let's tweak it so we get a Farlap-sized heart mm. in a Winx horse. And then, holy truth, what have we got now? A horse that can run over short and long distance? I don't know what you get. You might get a complete hopeless 
result or you might get this <laughs> unbelievable result. But when you start cloning and then you start looking at things like CRISPR, which we've talked very briefly about That's before, right. you start to go, what can we create here? The world is our oyster, but then ethics does start to get in the road a little bit. Yeah, so ethics is a big thing. And we talk about that in uh, school at a year 12 level as well, just about the ethics of genetic technology. Yeah, right. um, and yeah, we, we try to separate also um, the difference between cloning and transgenics. And so modifying uh, DNA per se, with cloning, you're simply just taking the DNA from one organism placing it into another, uh, um, uh, uh, the egg of, of another organism, and so growing it from an egg. Um, and so, yeah, cloning's a little bit different, but it does blur the lines. Once you start, once it becomes common practice to do that cloning, mm. it's not such a big step to go to that next level. And I think the really interesting thing is when we start doing animals for so commonly, so easily, it's say 50 grand, if you've got a spare 50 grand, I can think of better things well, to do with it. But now, but it could come down to be cheaper, but yeah, yeah. That's right, but once people accept that, once they say, look at this, I've got my fourth generation dog from that dog that I had all those generations ago, and it's still the same genetic material, I just wonder how far before people say it's okay to do a human. Yeah. That's the real ethical question, I think. Mm. Now, there's only one way to introduce this next story. The vehicle at the centre of the story in Back to the Future is nothing short of iconic, but sadly, the makers of the DeLorean... Well, never made it much bigger than a feature in the movie franchise. Let's face it, that's alone. And now for the grand intro. Great Scott Marty! DeLorean sets a date for its electric resurrection! Get in, there's no time to waste! How to do, Matt? Very Talk good, actually. <laughs> Very good. I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, you're right, the DeLorean, it is a, an iconic vehicle. In fact, I'd go so far as to say... It's the most famous movie car of all time. Now, James Bond has got some classic cars, but they're different in each movie that comes out. That's right. Yeah, but, um, yeah, sorry, so with James Bond, you've got the Aston Martin, and everyone knows about Aston Martin. It's quite Although, a don't forget that they've actually changed some different vehicles in oh, later right. franchises. Well, sorry, my apologies. But you're right, the Aston Martin has been the vehicle of choice for James, but it's a different Aston Martin each time. That's right. But the DeLorean was like, it was good for nothing. <laughs> It and the only thing it was good for was this movie. That's about right. It wasn't successful at all. And there are people out there who still make parts for people who've got their old DeLorean and want to keep their old DeLorean on the road. For whatever reason, I'm not sure, because, again, they weren't a great car. But imagine having a futuristic DeLorean. Imagine taking It's got to have a flux capacitor. Oh, a flux right. capacitor. <laughs> have some aluminium can to drop in the top <laughs> of it for your nuclear reaction or your flux capacitance, whatever yeah. it might be. But... Just this idea of taking something that was so iconic and futuristic, obviously, and then making it actually futuristic, making it an EV. What a great idea. Now, of course, this is all concept car we're talking about. Mm -hmm. DeLorean, the company that owns the DeLorean brand name, has said, we're going to make this concept car and show it off. And I think then they'll just gauge the reaction. So they'll take it to some trade shows, some car shows. If people get really excited about it, they'll probably say, there's enough out there to turn this into a real car. I'm not sure what they're going to do with the old Goldwing doors because the Lexus, for example, the Lexus Model X, 
has done a very clever job with its doors where it actually can fold up in a confined space, whereas these ah, doors yeah. kind of fold out. So if you've got a car beside you in a car park, you, you, you can't get out. The, you <laughs> need one of those disabled car parks only. Exactly <laughs> right. So you've got enough room on both sides to be able to open the doors. So one of the failings of the DeLorean was the fact that you had these doors that were hopeless <laughs> you, in a normal you situation. You the shops. <laughs> That's right. You can have it in a big car park or out in the street maybe, but no, you can't park beside another car. But they'd probably be able to modify some of those, looking at examples, for example, the Model X that we talked about. But just imagine, I, I just think this would be fantastic, a DeLorean that's got the flux capacitor on there, that's got the, the trinkets from the movie franchise, but also having that as an EV, I do worry what happens when you hit 88 miles an hour. I'm not sure if that has something <laughs> go off, some sort of graphics on the screen or whatever. You shouldn't be going 88 miles an hour. I'm sure there's nowhere in the world that's got, oh, well, probably an autobahn, but yeah. nowhere in America that'd have 88 miles an hour as a speed well, If you start dragging flames behind the car, then you... Uh, <laughs> that's right. Maybe they could have it at 88 kilometres an hour because okay. you can get to that speed right. and they have something go off in the dash and maybe it spits out some flames out the back for you as well. But I do like the fact that different companies look at some of the old Older, some of the nostalgic sort of component of cars, and then see how they can bring that into the modern world. But I reckon this is going to be a big seller. Everyone's I, going to want a DeLorean. I, I actually think you're right. I think if they came out with this as a true blue EV with some decent specs, people would want to own that car. And again, it would be a, a statement, a, a statement car, but yeah. also doing it as a modern car as an EV. That would be very cool. I wonder if they will. Uh, it'll have all the, the 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 like sharp angles on it that the DeLorean had in 1985, uh, or the smoother lines of 2022, perhaps. Well, I think they'd probably still try and keep the imagery of it, but maybe yeah. rounding off a little bit would make sense. But you'd want to keep that classic look of it, wouldn't you? There's yeah, no other sure. car that I can think of that looks quite like <laughs> the DeLorean. Got a big novelty value. We've talked a bit about drone deliveries starting to gather momentum. We suggested only a couple of months ago that size would be an issue and we all have to adjust our expectations around that. Now, I believe it was Kierkegaard who said something to the effect of, if you define me, then you limit me. And the good people at FedEx just love a bit of 19th century Danish philosophy. Hell, they refuse to be limited and they're they're now testing an enormous 850 kilogram drone. And Matt, I think that means that they want to start hauling some big cargo. They do. And this is about the middle mile logistics. So often we talk about the last mile. And we've spoken about some drone deliveries before. We're talking about taking some small packages from Coles and dropping it into your backyard. But it still needs to have some of the components, some of the freight taken from town to town, from city to city, for example. And you've got FedEx trucks that typically do that now. They can carry about 450 kilograms. So this particular drone, you mentioned it, weight, 850 kilograms is the the weight of this particular drone, but its payload can be about half a truck, so 225 kilograms in its payload. Now, you think about the convenience of putting things onto a drone and saying, there you go, go off to somewhere a couple hundred kilometres away, compared to load up a truck and go a couple hundred kilometres away, Mm. then the drone has got huge advantages, you can go on a straight line for a start, doesn't worry about traffic, it's really quite convenient, and it's autonomous, so you don't have a driver sitting in there to drive from A to B. So this is where they're focused on a lot of the the drones are going for that last mile for the delivery and I think FedEx consider that there's enough work being done there that maybe you need to go back one step and start to get to that drone delivery component so it's a big unit though it's about eight meters across a wingspan oh wow Uh, it's about six meters long and weighs as you said 850 kilograms it's got a range of about 480 kilometers and it goes around about 160 kilometres an hour. So just imagine a trip, you know, 480 kilometres doing that in maybe three hours. 
a bit better than a FedEx delivery truck, I would That's imagine. Amazing. Especially when you take some of the, the uh, I suppose, the various con- uh, congestion that you get in modern oh, yeah, roads yeah, in, yeah, into account. Sure. So, so that's all quite interesting. One of the things that's really interesting about it is that it's actually using gas turbines to generate electricity for the electric motors. So it's the diesel electric train version, if you like. And they're getting that range, that 480-kilometre range, by not just being purely electric. A lot of the drones we've seen so far that we've talked about are all electric. But this, they believe they not going to get quite the range they need for something this big. So they've got these gas turbines, which is what you normally see in a plane, gas turbine engines, but they're just driving a generator to generate the electricity for it. So yeah, wow. that makes it a, a, a bit of a combination, if you like. But I think that makes sense because you, you're just getting that range. Batteries will get better. We'll get to the stage where they're all electric, but at the moment that hybrid sort of model seems to be a, a better way to go to get the range in the short term. So it's all very exciting. It's all very interesting. We will see more and more things up in the air as we go forward. Some will have people in them. Some will have packages in them. And some will be doing package delivery to the end user. Some will be going from depot to depot, and that's what this will be doing, going from depot to depot. Well, I think it's amazing. Uh, and I was just thinking, and, and when you were just mentioning about you know not worrying about congestion and whatnot, I was uh, listening to uh, an oncologist out here at Dubbo talk in the last week, and he mentioned that getting radioisotopes from a, um, a cyclotron at Liverpool Hospital to Dubbo, they have to consider traffic um, that is occurring between the airport and, and the cyclotron um, and being able to load this radioisotope on for treatment of cancer patients um, and then shipping that out to Dubbo. So there's a whole bunch of logistics that need to occur in order for patients at our new oncology centre that we a fantastic oncology centre that we got out at the Dubbo Base Hospital. Uh, but time is of the essence because radioisotopes, they decay um, and so they've got a half-life um, of a particular time and um, you're really bound by time. And so if you end up getting your sample arriving here in Dubbo and to the hospital, um, and there's only a minute amount of it left, then that restricts who can get treated by it. Well, I think if you can throw that on a drone that can do 480 Ks, in a straight line, bang, you've just wiped out that problem completely. Yeah, and more to the point, when we heard from that particular oncologist, they were talking about the fact that they get it from the hospital out to the airport, then on a plane and out, and then from the hospital, sorry, from the airport to the hospital. So, so there's a few steps. trips in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine having something like this device at the hospital and it takes off straight from there so you eliminate all those other little steps straight from A to B it might not travel quite as fast as a normal aircraft 160 kilometres an hour but you're going directly from the source to the destination with no other stops or gaps in between so that can make a huge difference that's got to create a whole lot of greater efficiency for most people it's just that I ordered my dress today and I want it today. But there might be some... <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, <laughs> so radioisotopes is a bit of a stretch for the common person. Well, there might be some other more practical reason you might want a quicker, like a radioisotope. And interesting, when we listen to that oncologist, he was talking about the fact that the dosage they might have to give the people that they're treating towards the end of the day or, mm. or during the day have, might have to increase because those isotopes are getting... You know, past their half-life or mm. past their, the amount of radiation they're putting out. So it's fascinating how they've got to change the dosage throughout the day. Again, getting it there quicker makes a big difference. Makes all the difference. Yeah, 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 fascinating. Yeah. And get that dressed to me on time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'd say that this next story would get a particular demographic really bouncing in their seats with excitement. But I think it's probably safe to say that we're not going to be the ones breaking the news to them. If I know gamers... They always know stuff before you. So they've all heard about DreamHack already. 
But for the muggles amongst us, the renowned global gaming event, that's DreamHack, and it's a celebration of all things gaming, it's on its way to Melbourne, Matt. It's on like Donkey Kong. It is, and I'm going. You are? (laughs) Absolutely. I've talked to my son already. We're going, yep. Beginning of September, September 2 to 4, DreamHack. Never been in Australia before. Let's go. I'm actually working on a couple of my daughters, and they're not quite as excited (laughs) as my son. But to be fair... Esports are big now. Esports are big, but this has got a bit for everyone. So if you're into your esports, if you're into your gaming 24 hours a day, if you come home from uni, school, work, whatever, and the first thing you want to do is get on a game and start playing online, buy yourself whatever, then DreamHack's for you. But it's also for the casual game. When I put myself in the very much casual gamer category, I don't have a lot of time to play games. I do enjoy playing them, and it's a good way to connect with, well, at least one of my kids anyway. Yeah. It's my son, being a bit sexist there, I think, but my daughters just don't seem to be in the games the same level as my son is. And so it's a good way to connect with my son and go and have some shared experiences. So even for a casual gamer like myself, going on a dream hack, seeing what's there, but I'm actually fascinated by seeing where it's going, the type of games that are going to be the games that are being played in the future. And I think one of the big things I've seen over gaming is just that online gaming experience. It used mm. to be, James, come into my house, we've got this cool new game that we can play against each other. And well, that was well, fine. Well, when you could play against each other, it was great. But it usually be, it was it for a long time, just take it in turns. Take it in turns. You that- can watch me play and I'm really good and maybe you'll learn something. You'll have a quick go and then you'll get out really quickly, then I'll be my turn again. No one wanted to go to someone's place. It was really good because <laughs> exactly right. You watch me for 30 minutes and then your turn lasts about two of minutes. Course, and- folks, that was the olden days. I think, was that back in the 1920s? I think so. Right, Pinball okay. machines were the same. Someone would be able to play <laughs> one ball for ages and then finally you'll go and it goes straight down the middle and you go, oh, I've got to watch this other guy for all this time. So you're right, you took it in turns. Then it was exciting when you actually got to play against someone else or mm-hmm. maybe with someone else. Sometimes yeah, the, you'd play the game where you'd play against. Yeah, cooperative yeah. playing. And then when it got to the stage where you could play online, that meant, James, don't come around to my house and bludge the beers out of my fridge and the chips <laughs> out of my cabinet. <laughs> then you can just sit at your home and eat your food and I'll sit at my home and we can play against or a game with each other. But I think... I hope my 14-year-old son isn't bludging the beers out of my fridge. <laughs> no, no okay. hopefully not yet. No. Okay. He'd be straight rum. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I think that's the thing. It's really changing that whole dynamic of the way you play games. So where is it going next? What's going to be the next thing? And that's what I'll look for at something like DreamHack is where is gaming tomorrow? Mm. What's the future of gaming? How will it change as we go forward? What will be the next thing that people play? Now, I can't tell you what it is. I don't know what it is. Online gaming seems to be incredibly popular, but there's something next, I'm sure. Someone's working on it right now. that's why you're going to DreamHack. That's exactly why. So I can come back and I can tell you what's coming next (laughs) after all the people at DreamHack know all about it before I do. But they're obviously developing things, and a lot of it's driven by sales, a lot of it's driven by companies who want to have the next product to sell. There's no point having the same product to keep selling over and over. So that's obviously part of it. But it is something that's exciting. And just the technology we've got, we couldn't play online in the olden days because we mm. weren't online. So we didn't have connectivity. Even when we started getting connected to the internet, you couldn't really play online because the connections too slow went, and clunky. Yeah, they yeah. weren't fast enough. So as things change, so even as our processes get better, our chips in our gaming machines, consoles, our video cards, all those get better, how does that translate to what can happen online. Are there better ways to transmit that data online between different games that are playing on there? So all these things will be, I think, fascinating at DreamHack. My son will just want to go and play games there, but I'll drag (laughs) him away from that and say, let's look at some of the technology here. Well, it will be a spectacle, I am sure. A lot of light and sound. Tickets are available on Ticketek right now. They went on sale a few days ago, so get in now. They're still for sale at the moment, but I don't think they'll take long to be all taken up. Well, I hope by the time you're finally listening to this, folks that they're still available. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) 
The business of car sales is a pretty demanding industry. And for a distant island like Australia, without its own car manufacturing industry, considering all the troubles that are going on in the world currently, well, anyone in the market for a new car is probably a little bit jack of the current lengthy waiting list. So now, the used car market is currently running hot. With the internet opening the doors to a national marketplace some time ago, the big frustration for buyers and sellers alike has been the lag time in delivering the prize across the country. So Matt, there's a new player on the scene looking to shake things up considerably. It's a big thing to have a new player in an online selling environment because you think those environments are fairly well advanced. So you've really mm. got to have something a bit different if you're going to come into it. Car sales, Gumtree, they've been selling cars on there. Car sales obviously is very focused on selling cars and they do, from what I've seen, pretty good job. I've sold cars on car sales. So it seems like it's a fairly robust process. They've got a fairly developed system. So you've got to have something a bit different. So what Cars24, which is this new player in the market, has done is they've said, what are the pain points for people when they're buying cars secondhand via an online sales tool? And they found two things. The first thing was, I don't want to buy a lemon. I don't know if I trust yeah. this guy I'm buying it from. So I buy this car and then if it's that a real dud. so nervous buying online. Exactly right. <laughs> anyway. So what can I do about that? You're really trusting this other person that you're buying a car from. So Cars24 said, we will give you a seven-day money-back guarantee. Oh, a test wow. drive for seven days, if you like. Yeah, right. I have no idea how that works. So if you advertise a car on Cars24 and I buy it from you, presumably I pay you some money, and then if I find that you've given me a complete lemon, well, I want my money back, but you've spent that money on cloning your dog. So that money's already <laughs> gone. So how do I get the money back? They might hold it in some sort of trust fund for that seven days. I'm not sure. I haven't actually looked at the logistics or the mechanisms they use. But the first thing they do is they say, seven-day money-back guarantee, buy your car, seven days later, it's yours. If you decide for whatever reason you don't want it in that first seven days, then here you go, bring the car back and take your money back. The second thing they did was they said, exactly as you mentioned, getting a car in Australia at the mm. moment is near impossible. A brand new car, you can be waiting 12 months, 18 yeah. months for some models. Who's going to order a car today that they're not going to get for 12 months' time? It is an instant society. Someone who it's a, really wants that car. Oh, absolutely but, right. Yeah. So they've said, again, these are second-hand cars, but they guarantee that it will only take you seven days. So... Again, I don't know how that works. Wow. You might be in one part of Australia. I'm in another part of Australia. I like the car you're selling. I say, James, I'll have that car, thanks. Great. Now, you've got to somehow work out a way to get it to me within seven days. Now, Cars24 obviously facilitates that process. But getting the car within that seven-day time frame means that I'm not waiting for a year, two years, whatever it might be for that car. I'm getting it within a week. That sounds pretty reasonable. So they've really focused their business model on Two pain points people have with getting a car, let's address the time frame, let's address the trust issue, let's take care of it and see how we go. And so far, they seem to be going fairly well. Yeah, it'll and be interesting how that goes and see if it's sustainable. I, I, listeners out there are thinking, oh, how can I test this? If I <laughs> want a car that's in, say, Derby in north uh, western Australia, and then I'm living in, I don't know, maybe Cooktown in northern Queensland, <laughs> very fairly remote places, yeah, try, let's see luck. how they go. Yeah, try, let's go and buy it. <laughs> and then after seven days, I can just give it back anyway. Yeah, is it like a pizza and you get it for free? <laughs> yeah, that's it. I don't know what happens if they don't make it within the seven days. I do think about that. And maybe they're not saying what happens if you don't get within seven days because no, they're just, just saying you will get it within seven days. There's no wow. questions here. So maybe they're using that FedEx drone to deliver it. It doesn't <laughs> quite handle the weight, 225 kilograms, maybe not quite there. So, look, I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting business model. But, again, it shows you that if you've got a good idea now, you've got 
the technology, the ability to bring that good idea to market fairly easily. You don't have to go and pitch mm. a bunch of information to a bunch of executives from some company. You can just go and launch that whole concept and away you go. And that's what Cars24 have done. The innovators in the solar industry are now in the business of developing creative ways to catch the sun. Clearly, the easiest way is to just drop a bunch of solar cells on your roof. But that cuts out so many people when they don't have a workable roof space. So in the UK, where every glimmer of sunlight is a precious gift, let's face it, they're getting sneakier and sneakier about soaking up the sunlight, Matt. Absolutely right. One of the things that's a problem, which I didn't realise, with some of the very old housing in the UK, is that even if you've got some roof space it may not be able to handle the extra weight the of solar panels. The old roofing. Yeah, yeah exactly right. right. Think about some of those roofs or some of the age of those houses over yeah. there. Then putting the extra weight, and it's not a lot of weight in solar panels, but it is extra weight. Yeah. That roof, when it was designed hundreds of years ago in some circumstances. They solar panels. They weren't, they weren't thinking, you know, in a few hundred years' time, you know, we might need to add an extra 500 kilograms to this roof. So that's been a problem. So some people who really want some solar panels on the roof can't do it. And then the other problem you get is some of the shading. So solar panels typically aren't great when you have shading across any parts of it. Now, mm. in Australia, you've got some trees around the place maybe, but you've got a fair bit of space between the various houses. And so you've got enough shading or lack of shading that you can have fairly good sunlight for a large part of the day. Now, in this particular design, they've done two things to try and negate both those problems. The first thing they've done is they've said, you've got a film. Forget about a solar panel, a hard fixed thing. You've got a solar film. And that solar film could be incorporated, for example, in a blind. You can have a blind that rolls up and rolls down. And actually, when it's rolled down, that's when it's collecting sunlight. They're not as efficient as a solar panel, so you're getting solar panels that are getting maybe 24%, even some talk maybe up to close to 30% from a solar panel. These aren't as efficient as that. You're probably getting closer to 10 to maybe 15% efficiency of that. But if you've got nothing or you've got a panel with lower efficiency, you'd probably mm. take that. So you can put it in a film, you can put that in your blinds, but as a thin film, you can also put it on a roof because it's not very heavy. Of and course. then you get some shading from various other buildings that might be around you, and it can live with that shading and still generate electricity from the panels or from the film that's being exposed to the sun. So they've tried to address those two problems. So whereas some people in the past have gone, oh, I live in the UK, I live in London, whatever it might be, and I'm, I'm going to give up. Throw I'd, your hands up. Yeah, no point in trying. This company has said, no, there is a point in trying. Let's see what we can do with something that's less efficient but still at least will generate some electricity for for you. Then you start to get some really cool things. And I saw some sculptures they were making out of this solar film and they had this really cool concept. A sculpture. So take a sculpture, put this beautiful sculpture out in your garden, but this beautiful sculpture is covered with the film. film. And they show this great example of an electric vehicle out in the yard plugged into the sculpture because <laughs> the sculpture was out there as part of the decorative piece in your garden but also generating some electricity for your car. It needed to be plugged in for 18 years to charge up your car. No, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> but but it, it probably wasn't as good as having some normal solar panels there and charging up your car from there but it still added to the amount of electricity that you could generate just from the sun and doing it in a way that some people might find solar panels ugly. Well, create a sculpture mm. out of a film that generates electricity, suddenly it changes the whole conversation. So, it's just another one of those examples where I love people who are out there thinking about things differently, innovating and doing, not just drawing some pictures at a cafe while they're having a few coffees one day. They're actually going out and doing it and actually getting these out into the market. It just changes the whole world 
and who knows from what we've got now where these things might go. Where that will go. And that's the point that I wanted to make is that this is where we're at now. We've got now got flexible solar panels and you know, we're trying to dream up ways that we could use that. Well, where are we going to be in five years' time with flexible solar panels? And how else can you use them? What other ways can you possibly yeah. think of using them? Think about stadiums. There's a, an actual rugby stadium in the UK where some of the stand, the major part of the stand, is facing the wrong direction to get good sunlight. They have more about putting solar panels up there because it just the return wasn't there. Mm. But with this film, they were actually putting this film across the whole top of that stadium. So even though the efficiency is not as good, think about that so surface like a canopy. area. Yeah, right. Like a canopy of solar film, yeah. yeah wow. Comes back to that old thing, surface area. I love my surface area. <laughs> <laughs> but they're the sort of solutions you can start to think of now. In the past, they've just gone, no, no point. Now, hold on, there is a point, and we've got this huge surface area. Let's see if we can put a film across there and generate some electricity. And we kind of alluded to it in the last story, but... It's getting harder and harder for the green energy naysayers and cynics to get by these days. Apparently wind turbines are no good, solar panels are no good, and batteries won't work after a couple of years, apparently. When innovations are announced with their entry-level intentions, the fist-waving fossil fuel is going to overdrive to, de- to overdrive to decry how it'll never work in a million years. But there, if there's one thing that humans are good at, it's ingenuity. With enough heads at the job, the job gets done and we open up the door to a whole new way of life. And that's my long-winded introduction to the concept of the community battery, a centralised storage of green energy that a group of people subscribe to for their power needs. It's economical and could be the bright future for home energy storage. Matthew? I hate to say it, but the West Australians were in front of us, James. Way back in 2016, there was a community battery trial in the Perth suburb of Alchemos. Don't know if I pronounced that's that right. A cool name. I've never been there, but yeah, it is a I cool name. I want to go there it? now. Yeah. So the whole idea here is that some people have the solar panels on their roof. They're generating some power. Going back to the grid, we used to get paid good money for that. Now we get paid not very much money for that. But you're paying it or you're putting it back into the grid getting paid not much money but then when you do need to use electricity you're paying more money for it and so Mm. people say well i want that electricity for me so they put batteries in but batteries in your house are sometimes not great financially and sometimes you need more battery power than that battery can provide Mm. and sometimes you're generating more power then you've already got a full battery so where's that going then back to the grid you're not getting paid much for it so battery adoption has nowhere near been the same level of adoption as solar panels on a roof, for example. But a community battery takes out some of those peaks and troughs. So across a community, and we're talking about, in this particular example, they put a 1.1 megawatt hour battery in, in this particular suburb, and people around the community got to feed into that battery, so their solar panels would feed in, and then when they wanted to use electricity, they took electricity out, and then obviously if they flattened that battery completely, it was still connected to the grid. But what people found over this trial, so this is a trial that went from 2016, so it's been over more than five years, that saved people about 50 bucks a month on their electricity bill. Mm. Because now, rather than getting paid for the electricity at a very low rate and buying at a high rate, they weren't being paid for the electricity because it was going into this battery. And when you might have been using more electricity and I wasn't, I was generating more, it was okay because it was going into a common battery that you and I were both using in the same suburb, in the same area. It was unusual for everyone to be using electricity at the same time or everyone to be generating at the same time, although I'm sure that happened from time to time. But this is where the concept is that you take a community battery and you take out some of those peaks and troughs rather than have it just you and your house. It's the community using that battery. Yeah, it's a great idea. I just There's so many positives for this. And that's right. So when you talk about a battery of that size, that sort of one megawatt hour rough 
sort of size, you're talking about maybe a thousand homes could be used in that community. So it's not just, hey, there's a battery in the corner for our little street. It's mm. a thousand homes could use that. So uh-huh. that's starting to get a reasonable sized community that can take advantage of that. A one megawatt hour battery is a fairly large sort of battery as well. It's not something you'd stick in your garage. It's mm. you need somewhere in the community infrastructure to actually put that in. But after this successful trial, I think you'll start to see a lot more people looking at this. How can we do it? Who pays for the initial infrastructure? Mm. How do we actually go about doing that? Is there an initial cost for me to get into this? And then I start to save money in the long term, the same as putting a battery in your house. What happens if I sell my house? Does that make my house more valuable? I don't want to invest in this and then find that my investment is just disappears because I'm now selling my house. So there's a whole range of questions around that. But I just think the concept of getting that electricity there where you need it. And that's the other big thing. Roughly 13% on average, of our electricity usage or generation is lost in transmission. Because mm. in the past, we used to generate it in some certain areas, coal-fired power stations, and then transmit a long way. Yes, you go very high voltage, but you're still losing about 13% of what you generate. But if you're generating electricity on your house and going to a battery that's a couple hundred metres up the road, and then when you're using it, you're using it from a battery a couple hundred metres up the road, transmission losses are obviously very low, And it would actually change, if everyone did this sort of thing, it would change the complete complexion of the grid Mm. because we wouldn't need to move so much electricity around. We're moving it in smaller sections. Now, we're a long way from that, obviously. But it is funny how if you go back to Thomas Edison, when he first said, I'll put a square mile of electricity in New York City, they had coal-fired power stations, generation points, on every corner, basically. Mm. So just chucking another coal-fired power station there, that's okay. They didn't really understand about smog, pollution, climate change, back in the late 1800s. No, it wasn't a thing. But we're almost at the point now where we're going to almost go back to that, where we've got lots of generators on the tops of houses and somewhere to store that in a community battery. So keep an eye out for this one. I think this will change dramatically as we go forward as different models come forward to try and take advantage of renewable power and the ever-escalating cost of electricity. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how small communities can get this up and running. Um, And there are small towns around uh, Dubbo that I can imagine could get together and put this together. But um, whether or not neighbourhoods would be able to coordinate well enough to be able to get this done, I hope they can. I hope there's a way. Um, It'll be really interesting to see. I think it'll be an authority that would come along. I I don't know that I would see two or three friends in a neighbourhood saying, let's just go and letterbox a few people around us and get together and build a community battery, I think it would be more an authority, whether it be an electricity authority or a mm. government authority or a government department coming along and saying... Uh, you've just said the words that have just killed myself. <laughs> That's in its out. <laughs> <laughs> it's not happening. Oh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, communities, get together, start letterboxing your neighbours and okay. start doing it yourself. Alrighty. For a car hire company, the price of stocking a fleet has got to pale in comparison to the cost of maintenance and upkeep. So perhaps it would make sense to stock up on EVs, Matt. Say, for example, like Hertz has committed to buying 65,000 of these suckers. Now, how about them eggs, folks? That's right. Now, this is the same company, Hertz, that said previously they're buying 100,000 Teslas. The share price in Tesla was pushed up that much by that announcement that it took Tesla over $1 trillion in its valuation. Now, I love this concept from Hertz because Hertz were on the brink of bankruptcy. They were basically Mm. gone. 
when the pandemic came along, suddenly people weren't hiring cars because you couldn't go anywhere. Mm. And so they had all these cars sitting out there and they go, I oh, know, what are we going to do? And they just, their debt level was so high, it just it wasn't a sustainable company. So a company or some finances came along and they injected $5.9 billion into the company to save it. So it needed some wow. saving. If you needed, <laughs> if you needed that kind of money injected, you needed some saving. So they saved it. But part of the process they said going forward was, we don't want to come along and just put a bunch of money in and then have the same old Hertz company that we had in the past. If we're going to come along and do this, we're going to make this company different. And so they believe they're on a winner where they're going to make Hertz known for its EV hire fleet. Mm. They have 500,000 vehicles in their global fleet. 100,000 Teslas is obviously a significant part of that, part of that yeah. 20% of its overall fleet. They've now committed to 65,000 Polestar vehicles. Now, Polestar is jointly owned by Volvo and Volvo's parent company, Geely. So there's Volvo in there, which people know and trust, and they're, they're a very trusted brand in terms of safety, absolutely. So when you put a name that people know and then bring a new brand along underneath that, I think people have got a fair bit of confidence in Polestar and what Polestar can do. But suddenly, when they've got a guaranteed 65,000 sales, you think, well, they've got some runs on the board straight away, and people are going to see these cars. They're potentially going to hire these cars. Mm. And for anyone that's not true about an EV, I'd say, get onto the Hertz Co website and try take and find a, a Tesla. That's right. Tesla, Polestar, once they're available, and take it, hire it for a day, hire it for a week, get a feel for it and see what you think. But I think this will absolutely set Hertz apart. I've often talked about taxi companies. And for taxis, exactly the same as you said for a hire car company, the cost of the initial purchase vehicle of the hire car or a taxi is not the cost that you're paying for. It's paying, in a taxi in particular, it's the running costs. Mm. You're running up, I don't know, 300, 400 kilometres a day, every day. You've got maintenance on so many different parts of that. Having an EV taxi just makes so much sense to me. But if you had an EV taxi company where all of your vehicles, you get in this particular taxi company, you know you're getting in an EV, I think that would attract a lot of people. It's a more comfortable car to ride in. It's quieter anyway, all those advantages. But there would be enough people who would say, you know what? I'd prefer to go with that company because I feel like I'm doing something for the environment. I'm yeah. paying my... $40 taxi fare, whether I get in an internal combustion engine or an EV, so I might as well go the EV model, I think that would give them a huge competitive advantage. And that's what Hertz believes. This is going to be a huge competitive advantage for them going forward. Well, let's see how that goes. And on that note, I have to wind things up quickly before you sneak in one of those scandal alert stories to drag the tone down. I promise nine I've left it out. I've left it out. No <laughs> scam stories today, James. I'm going to give you credit. Nine out of nine good news pieces, Matt. An absolute cracker. I'm off to get myself one of those air purifying headphones and then head off to the Star Wars convention. I'm James Eddy, and I hope you've enjoyed the show today, folks. Join us again in another week's time. Don't forget to hit that like button or leave a warm, fuzzy message and spread the good word about Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson to all your family and friends. See you next time.